0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the third episode of the Early Insights podcast. This podcast is dedicated to telling the incredible stories of amazing innovators in the early childhood field. I'm Kea, and I'm here with my co-host, Matt. How are you doing, Matt?
1: Yeah, very well, thanks, Kea. Hi. Nice to, um, nice to talk to you. And just loving the start of spring. And uh, in my family, we're just I think inspired by the blossom and inspired by the little bit of sunshine we've had, just making schemes for the summer. We've actually been, um, with my two little toddlers, we've been talking about camping a lot. We've booked (laughs) a couple of, tentatively booked a couple of post-lockdown camping trips. And we bought my kids sleeping bags, which they are kind of disproportionately, or perhaps um, proportionately excited about, kind of pretending to be caterpillars and like rolling around everywhere. My my four-year-old girl spent the last couple of nights like literally sleeping on a camping mat on the floor in her sleeping bag. That's kind amazing. Like, like role playing camping in her bedroom because she's been so excited about it. So yeah, I'm doing, um, I think, strange time, of course, but doing well. How are you doing, Kate?
0: Good, actually. I'm loving the weather as well. So Monday was my birthday, my second birthday during the pandemic, if you can believe it. Um, But the sun actually came out in London. So my husband and I took the day off and we did a picnic in Hampstead Heath and it was just gorgeous. Um, So that's one really fun thing. And very excitingly, kind of on my Earth Warriors front, we're launching our first at home program next Monday. So the week has been a bit manic, trying to get everything ready, but I'm very, very excited for that. Oh,
1: so. Fantastic, congratulations. Oh, and um, tell me, what did you get any nice birthday presents? That's what, um, in, our, um, in our house now, like we, um, my daughter's very, very, she, she takes present giving very seriously and she always gets, she is a bit disappointed when adults don't get like great toys. Did you get any good toys?
0: Not a toy, but actually I got a great present. I got a bike. Um, I have been meaning to for years now, especially during this lockdown, get a bike. And finally, because I really wasn't getting around to doing the research myself, um, my husband got one for me. So I'm quite excited. I now have a red bike that I need to get all the gear for and start um, riding. Do you
1: have a little basket on the front to put your dog in?
0: I was seriously debating that, but I think he's going to get too heavy too quickly. and won't fit in the basket.
1: Actually, when um, this is a tangent, and I won't linger here, but um, when living abroad in Latin America, I remember seeing some people who trained their dogs to skateboard. Like, like a, it was actually a bulldog that was um, it was a skateboarding bulldog. Yes, and it really, really knew how to do it perfectly. It was really impressive. Maybe you could um, teach a puppy from a very young age to skateboard and follow you around in that way
0: no i actually weirdly bulldogs are known to be quite good at skateboarding because they're very close <laughs> to the ground so it's um it's something i've looked into anyway right. um no, yeah, yeah. back to our podcast so who are we speaking to today
1: so yeah really excited about this one Kay. we're talking to tilly brown who's the primary head at reach academy in felton west london and yet yeah, really looking forward to this one and this has a bit of a personal resonance for me because i've been aware of reach for quite a long time reach was founded in the early 2010s as part of the free schools program in the uk where different people could kind of bid to apply to open innovative new schools and it was founded by ed van Kerr, who i knew when i was working at teach first in london and so i sort of from a distance saw him and a band of really inspiring teachers setting up a new school and I was the head of research at Teach First at the time, and went to make a case study of one of their early years teachers. In fact, so went to visit them, and they were in this old um, job seekers centre in West London. Mm. So they didn't have a proper school building; it was literally a, a kind of fu- old, like functional, functional building where they'd been used as a job centre that they were using in an interim way. And they've just gone on this incredible journey since that moment. So from this from this very kind of transitional temporary start to becoming now the REACH Foundation. Um, Their academy is absolutely outstanding, getting fabulous results for their kids. And I think what's interesting for listeners of this podcast is that they've got a really intriguing, powerful model. So they've they've got this cradle to career approach, Mm -hmm. this real sense of a, they talk about having an all through backwards planned curriculum. I I heard one of their teachers talk about it as like a flight path from early childhood right into adulthood that just joins up the whole process. And another thing they do, which I think people would be really interested to hear about, is really kind of think of themselves as part of the community Mm. and link in with the community in a very genuine way, which I think is often talked about, but actually not always really fully realized. So yeah, very interesting this one for anyone interested in kind of joined up, holistic ways of thinking about children's learning and development and in like relationships between schools and communities, education and health. So yeah, really exciting one, Keo.
0: Absolutely agree with you. And so here's our interview with Tilly. We hope you all enjoy it. Welcome Tilly, thanks so much for joining us. Can you quickly say who you are and what you do?
2: Yes, of course. Thank you for having me. My name's Tilly Brown and I'm the primary head teacher at Reach Academy Felton.
0: Brilliant. And one thing that we love to ask all of our guest speakers before we kind of jump into the more serious questions is what was your favourite book when you were a child and why?
2: Um, so I think my favourite book was a book called Farmer Duck Um, and it's because it has a such a repetitive storyline I remember it being the first time that I thought I was reading um, because my father was here and the duck went and I would be able to point to the word and just go Um, and I think for me such an important part of of reading and of stories is kind of sharing them with somebody that you care about and so um, story time for me has always been a really special part of when being kind of a class teacher and I regularly try and pop in and doing story times even in classrooms now so yeah Farmer Duck is definitely one that I carry around with me on World Book Day and share with the class that I've been given.
1: Sort of like an um, animal farm for toddlers that <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah and actually as you start to think about it you're like wow there are some real deep messages in this which I think you find quite a lot in children's literature which you sort of really uh, didn't come to understand probably at the age of about three or four. Mm-hmm.
0: Definitely. One of my favorite things too during story time was sharing the books that I loved as a kid as well. So that's great that that's not just an individual thing, but going around. Um, So we're really excited to hear all about your work at Reach Academy. But before we jump into that, we wanted to, we know that you were involved in the Oak National Academy during the pandemic that's
2: going on and wondered if you could briefly tell us about that project and what that looked like. Yes, absolutely. Um, it was quite a whirlwind. So um, Oak National Academy was was really founded over the uh, Easter Bank holiday weekend. I think I got the first WhatsApp on Friday afternoon and by Monday, uh, sort of by Monday afternoon, we were kind of all go. Um, and the idea is it was sort of it's an online platform created by teachers for teachers to essentially support with Home learning. So it's um, a set of free to use pre-recorded videos, worksheets, and quizzes uh, that just help schools to tailor their offer. It doesn't have to be used, but it's sort of there for those who want it. Um, And I was really fortunate I came in as a sort of um, running humanities for primary and also science and art for primary in the afternoons. I taught year one English. Um, And then we as we moved into kind of the kind of the company, well, the idea grew, it became apparent that this year could also um, be quite interrupted as it has been. And so we worked on creating a curriculum that would provide enough online lessons for the upcoming year. And during that period, I was quite involved um, in how we translated it to be really effective online learning and particularly uh, when it came to EYFS, how we could kind of create resources that were gonna work for the EYFS sector, because I think it's a really difficult translation piece for children so young.
0: Yeah, and that was actually going to be my next question is kind of, and we touched on this a bit when we were chatting earlier, you know, online learning for our youngest learners is such a controversial topic. And I wonder, like, what reflections do you have both from kind of preparing this, but the crisis in general of best practices or even messages that we could give to others in our community who are struggling with the same piece right now?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think is so difficult, and I think it really speaks to the standard friction um, often in the early years around like direct instruction versus direct instruction versus access to provision, um, and I think and I think for me, I believe both are are really important, and I think sometimes we. Do ourselves a disservice by going too hard on one or too hard on the other and feeling like you have to take a stand like you're on one side or you're on the other side and when it came to translating to online learning my feeling was was very much that we needed to provide effective direct instruction because you know for a lot of reception children it was end of the spring term and anyone who's taught kind of reception over here or kindergarten in the states knows that that is where a lot of the penny drop moments kind of turn up particularly when it comes to reading and writing and so that direct instruction when it came to those specific areas was really important but we then wanted to think about how we could present more open-ended tasks that parents could be doing at home the issue with that as I'm, i'm sure kind of we're all thinking is Parental time is a really difficult one. We had a lot of parents in my own school who are both working full time at home. And therefore, it's a lovely idea to say, like, today, the project is build a fort with your child. But I think firstly, that can lead to children feeling really frustrated if their parents haven't got the time to support. And parents feeling like they're doing a really rubbish job in what is a really difficult time anyway. So for us, what we tried to do is say, you know, here are some options of what you could do why don't you try you could build something out of lego you could make something out of pillows in your living room if that's available to you um and sort sort of give parents ideas because one of the things that that we got was a couple of months in like i've run out of ideas like what can i do to entertain my child so i think there was two purposes like one was the education and one was supporting parents to be able to engage their children at home which they did all want to be able to do in a way that was manageable with with everything that anybody everybody else had had going on at the time really
1: Tilly, I've watched a couple of the, um, the Oak National Reception early years classes online and they're clearly just put together with so much skill and care and love. Uh, can, you, can you give us a sense of the kind of design principles when thinking about an online learning experience for a very young child? Like what's, what's in an educator's mind when they're putting something like that together?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think for me the key thing was um, one click. Like a child needs to have to click once And then maybe if we pause the video, one other button, but having one click through is really impactful because if you're asking children to go here and then go here and then go here and then go here before you know it, the parent has to be involved Mm. as a starting point. And the child is it very quickly loses interest. So I think the first thing is that it needs to be um, easy to access. It needs to be short. Concentration spans are short and that is appropriate. We wouldn't keep children on the carpet for 30 minutes. We certainly don't want them looking at a video for 30 minutes. That's not appropriate. And thirdly, I think it needs to be really interactive. And that is kind of the third most important thing for me is that, we do a lot of kind of my turn, your turn. So I'm gonna say a word, you're gonna say a word as part of vocabulary instruction. We do a lot of modeling. Like if we're going to write a sentence, I'm going to show you exactly how to do it. Because actually we know that resilience at home is significantly less than it would be in the reception classroom. And so as a result, it is vitally important that anything we ask children to do, we demonstrate really fully as a starting point.
1: Beautiful. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Tilly. So we asked you here primarily to talk about Reach Academy, where you are working as the primary head teacher. Um, I first visited Reach about eight years ago, soon after it first opened in a disused job centre. It was such a, a privilege to be there at that early stage when it was really just an idea getting off the ground. And then since then, it's clearly been on a remarkable journey. It's become very high profile, something of a beacon in the UK education system. Can you tell us a little bit about REACH's story for people who've never heard of it and about its kind of values and aspirations?
2: Yeah absolutely, so REACH began um, in 2012 and it's really the idea is that it is a small school and um, so there's no more than 60 children per year group um, for children from ages 2 to 18. The aims provide the knowledge, skills and attitudes to live a chi- life of choice and opportunity And for me, what I really loved about the school when I kind of first heard about it was was the idea that it was for two to 18. So it really carried children through their educational journey. I really loved the fact that it acknowledged that um, to live a life of choice and opportunity didn't just require skills. But there was a huge piece around attitude and the ability to um, see opportunities and to take opportunities when they arose. Um, and for me that was kind of what what drew our attention to it. To go a bit further back I guess um, it was really influenced by the US charter school movement so our co-founder Ed Vanker watched the documentary uh, Waiting for Superman as actually I think I did sitting outside in Teach First Summer Institute uh, in Warwick um, and he was really influenced by that and and felt really strongly that um, this was something that needed to happen in the UK and what I think really struck him. And then when he found his his co-founder Rebecca Kramer was the idea that you could take whatever it takes stance to education, that you were going to create a school that did whatever it took for a child to be successful. And that that was a realistic goal. And that that really meant that the school needed to exist as part of the community, that actually the school couldn't exist in isolation, that it needed to work really closely with uh, families um, and with parents to enable those incredible outcomes. And I think it's for that reason that, you know, when people come to reach, they often say, oh, but the relationships here feel different. Well, partly because we're small, we can do that. Partly because we've got a long time, we can do that. You know, I'm not thinking, oh, I've got two years to build these relationships. I'm thinking, well, this child is currently two. I'm hoping they're going to be here till they're 18. So I've really got to invest in this now because, you know. Actually, this is only going to become harder. Having worked with teenagers, I can definitely suggest that it becomes harder as they get older, not easier. Um, and so, I think for me, that was that was really important. Um, and and I think that that kind of continues to be the case. Like we keep going back to those real key ideas, and that it is about being small. It is about having those relationships, and it is about knowing the whole child and educating the whole child, so that when they leave school, they can choose because fundamentally choice to me is the most important thing Um, and I think it's what swathes of our society who are disadvantaged are denied is the choice with what they want to do with their future and 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 that to me is what I find most exciting what gets me up every day and kind of drives me forward.
1: Thanks Tilly and Give us a bit more of a sense of the, of the community side, because you talked about relationships with families. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because arguably every school is part of its community. You have to every school has to have some nature, some level of relationship with the families it works with. What is what is different about the way that at reach you work from you work with the community? What other things are you doing?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So we kind of, there is obviously the REACH Academy felt in the school, and we've also got the REACH Children's Hub. And that really is around the idea of a kind of a cradle to career model. Mm -hmm. So within the REACH Children's Hub, we've got um, antenatal classes. So the idea that we want to be identifying the children that we want in our school before they've even been born, we want to be supporting the mothers in our area to be able to make the best choices they can for their their child from when they are really, really small. things like um sort of you know we've currently got uh, uh postnatal yoga going on and creating networks of mothers that really uh, help everyone in the community to feel supported and then at the other end people working really hard on creating career opportunities in our in our community helping children to identify what they want to do and what options are available to them so it, it is much more than the school in the fact that it spans you know even longer than two to 18 like we are really looking at children before they're even born but i think a really good example for me um is what happens when you first get a place at reach so um before you even turn up, you get a home visit, which I think is, is very normal practice in reception, but definitely not very much further up. And something really special happens on those home visits, which is that we take over a, a some documents called a whatever it takes commitment. And um, I, if I'm on the home visit, um, I read it out and the parent has their own copy and we both make a commitment. I say to the parent, I commit to do whatever it takes um, for your child to live a life of choice and opportunity. And I'm asking you to come with me because I can't do it on my own. And the parent says, I also commit to support the school to do whatever it takes for my child to live a cho- life of choice and opportunity. And I think for me, that immediately sets us off on the path of working together as a team around the child, knowing that neither one of us can do it on our own, um, that sort of puts us on the path of success and, and really gives us A strong foundation upon which to have really difficult conversations which inevitably arise between a school and a parent throughout a child's education. Mm -hmm.
0: Can I ask a quick question around, um, I love the concept of cradle to career and you know one of the things that comes up often in early childhood is this zero to three age group and how it doesn't quite sit with primary school and pieces of it are in the health sector and pieces of it are kind of in private nursery, and but a lot of primary schools don't see that age group as their responsibility because they're not touching on it yet. So I'm curious how you guys decided to start even before children are born and build those relationships even before they're two because I think it's brilliant and so critical. And how do we create
2: this kind of cradle to career mindset everywhere? 100% and I couldn't agree with you more, I couldn't agree with you more about kind of the atomization of the early years space we kind of often talk about that and the fact that you can as a parent with a young child feel like you're constantly bouncing around you know I know parents who aren't just in one nursery they're in two nurseries because they need a morning nursery and need an afternoon nursery and they have a childminder in the beginning, middle who delivers picks up from one and delivers to the other. And I think for us, we felt really strongly that if there was a more consistent experience and if we could get all those services to work more efficiently together, children wouldn't fall through the net. Like, I don't know about you, but it's amazing to me the number of times when we might, a child might come into our nursery at two and we say, oh, has this child by be seen, been seen by the child development team? And then you speak to the, the nurse and they're like, oh, I thought they should be, but actually I don't think we've, join those two things together and I think for us it's really difficult to expect parents to navigate that that space on their own particularly if they're doing it for the first time so our goal is really to be an anchor for the parent so to have that connection to have that relationship who can then support them and be that point of consistency and and kind of help them really to navigate the early years space with um a feeling of of community as well I think particularly at the moment, talking to a couple of, of new mums um, that, that I know in our community, it's, it's really hard. And having that sense of other people going through it with you at the same time um, and getting the kind of school gate experience before your kid's are school gate age, if we put it that way, um, can certainly be, be really helpful and really reassuring, particularly at the moment, but I think all the time as well.
1: And, and Tilly, to what extent does the, the push for all of this end up coming from Um, the school and the hub or to what extent once you mobilize a community and energize a community do you see the community starting to become that kind of support network and information network for one another
2: I think uh, certainly we as a school came first but I definitely think um, you can you energize the community and you find people within your community who have the skills to do the work and they really want to do it and I think they don't it's very difficult you can have an idea or you can have a skill but it can be difficult to know how to put that out there so we definitely find we run a program called peep um, which is delivered by parent practitioners and that is amazing and these parents come forward you know they do the course with us and they say i'd really like to lead this and i think that is an incredible opportunity because actually know it's fine to parachute people into a community but that never really has the same impact as a grassroots movement that's driven by people in the community because that also lasts much longer it becomes part of what the community does on a day-to-day basis rather than kind of a new idea that might get lost along the way so i definitely think it does take a little bit of initial organization and it certainly did by the school and the hub, You know, we said, we think this is possible. Um, and often it was just a question of us going to the people that we already knew in our community and giving them the confidence to say, actually, yeah, you know what, I could do that, or I would like to volunteer to do this, or I do want to be involved in that aspect. And, and we are now so lucky to have so many of our parents coming forwards and either volunteering sup- to support with things that we already put on or, or coming with altogether new ideas of, of what they would like um, us to do.
1: And can you tell us Tilly, a little bit about your um, approach to learning in the early years, bringing things to to that side of things?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think kind of where I would start is is going back to that friction we spoke about with Oak which is kind of direct instruction with time and provision and the, and the role of adults and I think when we first started we focused really hard on the specifics so reading writing maths and it felt like that's what an aspirational early years was an aspirational early years has every children sitting on the carpet writing in detail um and we have really stripped that back mm. partly because Uh, You know, we are still aspirational, let me be really honest about that. We still teach phonics from week three in reception, and and that's right for our children. Um, But we also know that children cannot access any more of the curriculum in our school if they can't manage their feelings or attend to a task. And I find it really frustrating that the last time we measure that is when a child is five, because clearly that is one of the most important skills. But something we really focus on is kind of helping the child to identify themselves as a learner, as an individual within the space. Um, and that for us is a really key part of our approach to early years. So we do a lot of narrating, a lot of like um, discussion of how we can look after ourselves. We do a lot of discussion about managing feelings multiple circle times, because I really trust, you know, I'm a primary head teacher. I really trust in our curriculum from year one upwards. Like. I think that if you, you know, our curriculum is good enough, there was a child who couldn't read at the beginning of year one, we could teach them. It would be okay. But if they can't sit down, it's really hard to give them the intervention that you want to, to help them succeed at the rest of your curriculum. And so for me, that, I I guess I would say I'm like a primes convert. Like (laughs) I may be early on really focused on the specifics. One of my previous roles was a phonics lead, but I now just think, you know, I have an amazing nursery lead and, and she all the time comes back to, yeah, okay, there are, you know, we'll label the setting, but it's all about the primes. Like, how do we get them to do X? How do we get them to do Y? Um, and I think for me, it is all about balance. And I think that's, uh, you know, I, I really, in majority of education, I reject dichotomies and I think a hundred percent in the early years, I think dichotomies are super dangerous, um, because there is absolutely a role of adults role of the adult as the expert, but there is also a huge role for the child as an individual to discover their own interests. We need to balance that as early years professionals. There is 100% room for direct instruction, but also for a child to spend time and provision self-discovering. And I think it is constantly a balancing act, which is often underappreciated by those who don't work in the early years, uh, because they don't see the very, very consistent fine tuning that the professionals are doing in this space. Um, because it takes a lot of watching and, and often people don't watch closely enough in my opinion
1: mm. you talked about every child thinking of themselves as a learner and the um the educators narrating what's going on in order to help children think about that can you unpack that a bit more for
2: us yeah absolutely i think um i think when we talk about a child as a learner it it requires i mean we have we have values, but it requires I'm going to go through them because it's easier, but, you know, reflecting on what you've currently done and therefore the adults narrating like, oh, I can see, I'm now going to go into my classic reach practice voice, but like, oh, I can see that you look really closely at the flower and you've identified that it's, or you've seen that it's got three petals and you've tried to draw them with a really careful triangle. That's showing me that you're looking really closely. And I can also see that you've drawn a second flower and it's better than the first because you've reflected on it. It's it's that kind of thing. It's that, those small chunks of conversation that demonstrate that, something that a child has probably done initially quite automatically is being identified to them as something really important for them to do and then flagged as like you are becoming a better learner because amazing learners reflect on what they've done to make themselves better or to improve um, and you know we then have, have endeavor aspire show courage and have fun and i think a similar kind of vein of conversation with all of those just helps children to see what it means to be super successful in the classroom and that they have agency over that um, as an individual
1: brilliant and what was that endeavor aspire show courage have fun and have
2: fun yeah the h the have fun oh but together they do spell reach if you take the h of have rather than the f of fun
1: <laughs> and are they, and what are they are they, the, are they the values or
2: yeah there are there are five values and um yeah it, it's what we praise by um it's what we have difficult conversations around behavior by and um, they're you know it's what we shout out about in assembly and amongst staff meetings etc so yeah we, we do really kind of live by those
1: beautiful and yeah by, by the time children are 15 they are well and
2: <laughs> yeah you could tell from the speed with which they tripped off my tongue and you had to repeat them <laughs> but they're regularly something that we refer to
1: and um, you I've read on the website that you have an all through backwards planned curriculum what does that look like right at the start of the journey then? How does where you want to be age 18 start to manifest itself at the very earliest stages?
2: Yeah absolutely and, and I think sort of in three ways. I think one is what we were just speaking about, about giving them the skills to attain to a curriculum is, is key and I'm not going to build on that too much more because I've gone through that already. I think the second is um, building curiosity into the provision. So for example um, our primary science lead, when the children were doing hot and cold, was able to go down to our EYFS and say, right, let's have a look at this tough trade. Let's plan it together. What can we put into it? How can we ensure that children from very early on are getting those experiences of ice and of what happens if you hold ice in your hand and giving them the vocabulary um, to describe that. And then I think lastly, thinking really carefully about our direct instruction and how that builds. So choosing a strand. So, for example, we do um, biomes as part of our geography curriculum in year five and thinking really carefully about, you know, the books that we read in reception and that we're giving children an understanding of a broad range of biomes and the diversity within those biomes so that we are consistently building on that and children are re-engaging with the topic again and again and again so that... When it comes to being given the fancy language if we want to refer to it like that the concept is already very much in their head and something that they've been exposed to on repeated occasions and um, before they sort of get to, to that piece of learning. So I think in the early years it doesn't look as set as we start um, hot and cold in science in autumn two in reception like that's really not how it works but it is about what experiences do we want our pupils to have exposure to in the early years so that they can hook future learning onto those and um, we're in the middle of, of redesigning our curriculum around fundamental experiences that pupils have at two three and by the end of EYFS we're an early adopter of the new development matters and and so as a result um the work of of Dr. Julian Grenier has obviously been really impactful and something that that we've really looked into and you know experiences like when children one of the strands we're going to have is when children are two they're going to make a piece of toast and make butter and then they're going to serve tea to their adults with bread that they've kneaded and created themselves and then when they're at the end of reception being able to kind of make biscuits and looking at quantity and actually by having those experiences we give much greater meaning to the learning that they're doing so that we can discuss kind of why measurement and accurate measurement is really important. We can develop gross motor and fine motor skills in a context because you're using a cutter. Um, And so I think for us, we are aware that sometimes our children don't come to us having had a lot of experiences. So our EYFS curriculum gives them those so that it provides kind of hangers for future learning as they move up the school. I think
0: that makes a ton of sense Um, and is actually one of the best practices is you can't just introduce a new concept to kids suddenly at one age without any kind of prior knowledge or foundational experiences and expect them to get it. So I think it's brilliant that you kind of build those in very intentionally as they go on. I guess kind of... um, You know, we're making this podcast for a global audience as part of our early childhood communities. And in some ways, all of the brilliant things you've just told us about REACH are very specific to your context and location. But I'm wondering if you were to pull out a few of kind of the broader lessons that, you know, as we all know, kind of early years globally has more in common than it does different that people could take from REACH and apply elsewhere. I think our community members would love to hear them.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I, I guess one is um, I've said it once already, but I'm going to say it again. Rejecting the dichotomies. I think you are so right. We have more in common than we have differences. But too often we put ourselves in a camp and we stand there with our flags and we don't want to shift. And and for me, early years is is all about knowing your community, and, and then doing what's right by the children that stand in front of you. And that means that every curriculum is different. But also, uh, you know. Children coming in with uh, kind of struggling with communication language is not new. And so therefore I think where children, people have found really effective solutions, we should share those. And I think if people didn't fear that they might be judged in the EYFS space, that would happen more openly and more honestly. And um, so that, that for me is a really key one. I think another one is um, understanding early attachment. So we are um, an attachment-aware school. That's something that we think is really important. Um, And and a key part of that is our relational-based approach and kind of detaching the behaviour from the child. And I think particularly in the early years, that is absolutely vital. vital, And it's difficult. I think too often we kind of flag it as kind of we're attachment-aware, but I think it comes with huge amounts of responsibility for staff around training them and how to do it giving them a depth of understanding about what attachment is and providing with them, them with support when it's really hard because being attachment aware is much harder um, than having a line drawn in the sand that you always stick to. It's much more difficult saying, well, you know, all behavior is communication. So if child A acts like this and child B acts like this, that might result in different consequences, uh, but it really depends on the individual involved. So, that for me is, is a last one and I think is another one. And I think the last one is really kind of, we are so lucky as schools that we are the universal institution and that starts in nurseries and schools really, it's kind of from reception and therefore our access is unparalleled Um, And this comes with huge responsibility, but also huge potential. And we are in a really unique position in the early years to come to really understand our communities. When we think about that atomization of the zero to three experience, if we as schools and nurseries pull together and saw ourselves as the kind of anchor within that for those other experiences, I think we would uh, see far fewer of our children being left behind and far fewer of our you know less of our population not receiving the support that they need and I think it's difficult because it feels like it doesn't fall within our remit we are educators that is what we do and and in an ideal world that probably is what you do but actually if there is a need it is my belief that we should attempt to meet it and attempt to support with it and maybe if we do this now then we might go some way to creating more equality in our society and then the the earlier setting in the schools of the future won't need to do the same but i think it does it does feel a bit like the time is now and i think the pandemic if it's taught us anything has really seen the position of schools as central in the communities you know you've been reading about giving out of um food parcels and sort of directing people to the food banks and linking people up with what they needed and you know giving the support to neighbours and neighbour and sort of neighbours to neighbours and supporting elderly people we've done a huge amount with our local care homes and it would be really great I think if if we could kind of maintain this energy and bottle it up and keep it going because it would have a lasting impact that I think would be really incredible to see
0: Absolutely, and everything you said um, really resonated with me, especially the last bit. And I think this pandemic has really brought to light what we always knew, which is basically teachers are superhuman and do every <laughs> single thing and wear so many different hats. Um, and I completely agree. Like like I said in the beginning, too, sometimes people think that zero to three is outside of the remit of primary schools, but actually it can be so powerful if they become the anchor, as you said. Um, We've absolutely loved this conversation. And I just have one more lighter question for you. Uh, Finally, could you share something with us that you love to do with young children, an activity, however simple it is, that others could go away and try with their own kids or nephews, nieces, any young children they engage with?
2: Yeah, I I mean, I think it goes back to the book. It's something that I loved doing when I was small uh, and it is building a fort um, out of anything. Uh, a piece of um, pillows, a sofa, a duvet, I think firstly it's fun to do and then the possibilities are endless. I've spent many happy hours in forts with children where you know it starts a castle and then somebody comes in going I'm a mermaid and you go okay we're under the sea now this is great Um, and I think that for me is is the joy of early years so quickly construction becomes role play and the movement between the different kind of areas and the different skills is, is something that really makes me um, love what I do. And so, yeah, it's it's a strange one, but for me, it would be building a fort. Uh, although it could not be a fort, obviously. It could be anything you want it to be in that moment, but building, building a place where you can role play inside probably.
0: Exactly. Kids' imagination is just unbelievable. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. We have really enjoyed this conversation and I think our listeners will take away a lot from what you've said. Thanks so much for listening. Please subscribe to the Early Insights Podcast on your podcast app. It would also be brilliant if you could rate and review. It really helps other people find us. Thanks so much again, and we hope you enjoyed. See you next time.